From cancer cures to 3D human organ printing, the biotech sector is home to some of the most exciting companies in the world today, and in the past decade, it's been one of the most lucrative around. But last year, a tweet from Hillary Clinton sent the sector spiraling from stock market star to political punch bag. So are the good times over? I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at The Investor's Chronicle, and this is a special podcast about the health of the biotech sector today. The problems for the sector began in September 2015, when now notorious hedge fund manager and farmer exec Martin Screlly acquired the rights to life-saving drug Daraprim and promptly hiked the price by 5,000%. He quickly became one of the most hated men on Wall Street and the enemy of presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton, who took to Twitter to pledge war on biotech price gouging. Now biotech stocks find themselves at the heart of political controversy and share prices have taken a thorough beating. So has this tweet signaled the end of the good times for biotech or do sickly valuations present an opportunity? And as investors with little knowledge of drugs or disease, how can you tell the cures from the catastrophes? One of the presidential candidates uh, or somebody that was going to be nominated uh, thinks that we have to do something about pricing. And that is very worrying. But I was um, maybe a little bit amazed that uh, people use tweet to say things at that level. That's Carl Howell Janssen, manager of the International Biotechnology Trust, a company invested in the biotech sector. People couldn't put their tweet in any context. It was just out of the air. It came from nowhere and with this headline and you couldn't... What does it mean? Does it mean that she was outrageous by Turing or is it she outrageous by the whole industry? And the stock market is always very sensitive, so better be safe than sorry. And, and I think we've been in that territory. Hillary's tweet took chunks out of the shares of biotech companies globally and took a toll on the price of Carl Harrell's trust too. In the year to date, the Nasdaq Biotech Index is now down 23% in dollar terms. In Sterling, international biotechnology growth is down 7.6%. So are other fund managers worried? My name is Jeffrey Hsu. I'm one of the portfolio managers for the Biotech Growth Trust. This is a fund that we have managed since May of 2005. The biotech sector basically peaked in the summer of 2015 after posting outperformance uh, for four or five years. And really what sparked the downturn were some comments by Hillary Clinton, the presidential candidate in the United States, about what she perceived as excessive drug prices among some of these companies. That sent the whole sector downward, and frankly, headlines about drug pricing have really acted negatively on sentiment for the sector. So there is a lot of fear among investors about the sustainability of drug prices in the United States in particular. I think Hillary Clinton's tweet certainly had an impact. It's obviously a high growth sector, and many of the companies trade on very high valuations, and so given that any sort of negative sentiment can have quite a big impact on pricing. And obviously her comments, given her history of, of trying to sort of discuss pricing in the pharmaceutical sector, they kind of carried weight. And I think perhaps she was one of the, she, well, during the, the presidential race, she's always been at the fore. That's Kieran Drake, analyst at Winterflood Securities. He too then thinks that Hillary's comments are having an impact on prices, but what does her determination to, in her own words, take on outrageous price gouging in the specialty drug market mean for this sector over the long term? While we do believe that certain companies are raising their prices on their drugs in perhaps aggressive ways, overly aggressive ways, inappropriate ways, we would say that for the biotech sector in particular, because the products that they are introducing are truly innovative products that are first-in-class medicines, 
that really provide a benefit over standard of care, we believe those types of companies will be able to maintain premium pricing for their products. The price gouging that politicians in the U.S. that Hillary, you know, has uh, were irritated about is related to the non-innovative end of the market, where some manufacturers have increased price of all cheap drugs to the level of innovation. For example, Doraprim. We at International Biotechnology Trust, we invest predominantly in biotech, and that's in a high profitable innovative drug companies, and not in the low-margin generic specialty pharma that is not biotech. So our fund managers argue that the stocks they invest in will be immune to Hillary Clinton's war on prices. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Yes, though a more detailed plan put out by the Clinton campaign this month would suggest that she plans to draw a line between those drug companies raising prices for what she terms long-standing life-saving treatments with little or no new innovation in R&D and the more innovative companies coming up with new products. But are there other reasons to tread carefully with biotech? And was there more behind last year's crash than in one angry tweet? Peter Hewitt's manager of the FNC Managed Portfolio Trust and invests in two biotech funds. My name is Peter Hewitt and I'm the investment manager of the FNC Managed Portfolio Trust. It's been a roller coaster ride. I've made about four times my money in biotech growth over that period of time and in BB Biotech, which I've owned for a shorter period of time, maybe three years, I've almost doubled my money. It is more risky than the average of that, there's no doubt. It's more risky than Unilever or Diageo, but the rewards are quite considerably higher and the growth is substantially higher. In a world where growth is becoming harder and harder to find, broader technology, but also biotechnology and healthcare is an area where you can just see a secular above average growth for a long time. And so that's why from a retail perspective, it would be sensible to own one or two of these trusts and kind of just lock them away. The problem with biotech has been it's been feast or famine for a long time and you've had periods of 100% returns in a year, followed by periods of minus 30, minus 40%. And if you've got the right cycle, you've made an awful lot of money. But if you've got the wrong side of that, you could be sitting for three, four years doing nothing. It's one of those areas you buy and you have to just tuck away and forget about and basically don't try and market time it, I think. That's Ben Yearsley, founder of Wealth Club. He's been investing in biotech for years with mixed results. It's it's very unusual in in investment to have a binary outcome. You might have a company that will, share price will fall 20% because it's delivered 90 million profits, not 110 million. Fine. That's degrees of separation almost. In biotech, it's either, in a lot of cases, it works or it fails. Much of biotech investing is built on hope and involves banking on companies which might not even have a product on the market yet. On average, only one in every 5,000 compounds that drug companies discover and put through preclinical testing becomes an approved drug. So why then, by 2015, were biotech stocks rising faster than any other sector year on year? Between 2010 and July 2015, the Nasdaq Biotech Index had surged by 400% and big pharma companies were spraying billions of dollars on companies which had never produced a viable drug or passed a clinical trial. It was about $10 billion was venture capital funding. That's all kind of really early stage. They might have stuff in trials, but there's definitely nothing on the markets. So of the 70, 71 billion raised last year, at least 10 billion was that really early stage, and probably a lot more than that. However, there was also quite a bit of money raised for M&A. So a, a big chunk of that 71 billion was also raised 
to go and, you know, for biotech companies to actually go and buy other early stage biotech companies that they thought might succeed and prosper. Does it sound like bubble territory? There was this definite, I wouldn't say bubble last year, but it had you'd had had a good, very very good period of performance running up to the end of uh, end of fifteen, beginning of sixteen. Maybe we had a little bit of an overblown situation a year ago and then I was come back again a little bit. So where do we stand now? Jeff Sue says Biotech Now is not all speculative, high-growth companies. Biotech's big breakthrough names like Biogen, Celgene and Amgen today have steadier growth profiles and large pipelines, making them more stable holdings, and they're looking cheap. For the first time since 2011, large-cap Biotech is trading on a discount to the S&P 500. So does Now make it a good time to invest? biotech industry as a whole has matured quite a bit over the past 10 years. And I think one of the perceptions out there among investors, which we think is incorrect, is that this is still a very volatile uh, sector where uh, a lot of the companies are in danger of going out of business overnight and that sort of thing. Uh, Certainly among the younger companies, these smaller emerging companies, obviously there is uh, there can be quite a bit of risk with those companies. But I would say on the mature side of the spectrum, the large biotech companies like Amgen, like Celgene, like Biogen, they really have very steady earnings growth. And we think they've matured quite a bit since a decade ago. So fund managers say it's not that risky. The market says it's cheap. What does our own resident biotech expert think? Here's Megan Boxall, company's writer at the Investors Chronicle. I think it definitely is more mature. Um, well, although it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's definitely bigger because there are so many more that have been able to list because of investors being quite bullish on the sector at the start of 2015. And there's also now just more science, um, which makes it more interesting, makes it more exciting. We've made so much progress in science in the last 20 years. And that's really now starting to come through in the drugs that we're seeing. So the genome revolution, which came about at the start of the 21st century, that, that really sparked a new wave of drugs or drug ideas. And especially in oncology, that's been a massive area that's benefited from um, knowing more about human genome. There are so many companies now which are trying to really break the cancer cure space by really working on big immuno-oncology drugs using genetics. And here's the crux of the case for investing in biotech. We're at a point where science is driving forward innovations we never thought possible to cure diseases and conditions affecting a growing, ageing population. Here's Ben again. I'm very bullish for the long term in this space. There's a huge amount of capital that's flowed into it in the last few years. $71 billion was raised last year for biotech firms. And that's driving innovation, which is all linked really to ageing populations, demographics, bad health, obesity, all these kind of things that actually aren't going to go away. So the need for biotech to be innovative is is massively important. Biotech is the big long-term growth story because of the, you know, the need to keep people out of hospital, the need to keep them well, and just the general aging population and say obesity and diabetes. There are, you know, virtually 400 million people in the world with diabetes now. And that's just set to increase. You know, things like that 30 I think a third of Americans are technically obese. And we shouldn't start gloating in this country. I think 25% of UK are technically obese, you know. These numbers are, are quite scary. And actually biotech is one of those sectors that taps into that and tries to improve it and I suppose make people better again, for want of a better word. The advances that are coming through in, in areas such as personalised medicines that 15, 20 years ago you couldn't even dream of and now look like being a reality. You're actually going in and 
changing the DNA and, and, and gene therapy and things like that are potentially coming through, which are huge growth areas. There are something like 7,000 rare diseases in the world and only 5% are treatable. You know, there's big numbers there to try and aim at, and that's what these companies are now doing. Megan agrees, but she thinks cancer cures are worth the look for the next game-changing stocks. Immuno-oncology is the big one. Everyone is going mad about immuno-oncology at the moment because it is so exciting. There is one sector in particular, it's called CAR-T therapy. It's generating so much interest in the States. There are three companies operating in that space at the moment. And everyone's getting so excited about it because they're actually able to use the word cure and it be, it be true. They've had results where patients with really aggressive forms of leukaemia have been cured. They've gone into remission that's been long enough that you would say that they don't have cancer anymore. And being able to use words like that, I think, really gets investors excited. It gets everyone excited. That's what everyone wants. Everyone wants to cure cancer. So cancer, dementia, Alzheimer's and rare diseases. Are these the areas which companies are racing to cure? And if immuno-oncology is the big one, then what exactly is it and which companies are working on it? This encompasses a variety of therapeutic approaches that basically enhance the body's own immune system's ability to identify and eradicate cancer. And so, for example, Bristol-Myers Squibb has a blockbuster drug called Optivo. It's an anti-PD-1 inhibitor. It essentially allows the immune system to identify some of these tumors in the body and eliminate them more effectively. There are a number of innovations occurring in the what we call the rare disease space. These are diseases that uh, may not affect that many people, but we're seeing some very significant advances there. For example, uh, there's one company that's developed a gene therapy for a blood disorder called beta thalassemia. This is a genetic blood disorder that causes people to have to take blood transfusions on a regular basis. And we've seen some initial clinical data in humans where they've basically managed to, looks like, cure some of these patients by correcting the gene defect responsible for that blood disorder. Here's Carl Harold again. The last five years, the drugs that have, the number of drugs per year that have been approved by the FDA in the US have, have been increasing. And if you look in the pipelines of the drug companies and biotech companies in the world, you can see that for the last 15 years, every year there is an increased number of projects in development. Those projects in development will five years, 10 years from now be developed into drugs. Let's say Alzheimer's has been a little bit on the front page of even Financial Times. Uh, it's a disease that you know, when elderly get to a very high degree, maybe even up to 10% over a certain age. And there's nothing today that can cure the disease. It's only for s- symptom relief for a little while. So just imagine we could solve that problem. One company working on a high-profile Alzheimer's cure today is Biogen, one of the original big four biotech companies in the States. Earlier this month, the company made headlines after late-stage clinical trials for its new drug proved effective at removing the plaque buildup in the brain which causes the disease. But big blockbuster drug releases are increasingly rare for the big four, who today rely more on existing drug pipelines and have slower growth trajectories. Is biotech today looking more like the big pharma industry? I think Gilead might be a company that to a certain extent now resembles you know, pharma. It's dependent on certain few drugs. It's uh, all small molecules, basically, and it's not very much of, a, of a, like an external pipeline. Now, compare that to Celgene. It's also a big biotech company, right? Now they have a, diff- a slightly different business model where they have an f- early-stage development portfolio that's much more external. So they have had uh, agreements with, um, I think it's in the range of 10 companies or so, 
where they buy a 10% of the company and they give them the option to and pay for part for the cost of the development and then they share the upside. So they kind of risk reduce by, by having a lot of other you know companies work for them. And at the same time, they buy a lot of small companies. So I would say Celgene and Gilead are very different from the way they do business development. If you go down to the nitty gritty, you know, Biogen is uh, mostly you know, a company that has products that's where the sales increase isn't that big. But on the other hand, they have this huge binary event coming up in years. So they think, and maybe the market thinks so, with the Alzheimer drug, Alzheimer antibody that even was in Financial Times the other day. So it's a company that has you know, a traditional portfolio with good value and a high growth opportunity that's high risks. So they think about it in that context, it's very different from the others. It's mm-hmm. not like they have a, like Celian has a wide portfolio of opportunities, uh, while I think Biogen is more focused on one or two opportunities where one is mega big. And for, for Amgen, it's uh, one of the earliest stage companies, so it's a kind of broad portfolio with slower growth, but uh, um, and, and an you know, average good portfolio, but nothing really that stands out. Jeffrey Sue also distinguishes between older and younger biotech companies in his portfolio by dividing them between large-cap profitable pharma, mid-cap emerging biotech, and emerging biotech companies, which are very early stage. And he doesn't like those large companies attracting Hillary Clinton's ire. Some of the younger emerging companies in our portfolio include Insight Corporation that has an immune oncology asset that we think is very interesting. Dynavax has a new hepatitis B vaccine that we think looks interesting. So there are a number of companies that we think are introducing new products that are, are truly innovative. And yes, we do not have, for instance, any position right now in Myelin, uh, which is a company that has gotten some uh, recent negative press based upon the price increases they've taken for EpiPen, which is a shot that uh, kids frequently get when there's a severe allergic reaction that could be life-threatening. So um, we have steered the portfolio towards companies that we think are truly developing innovative products. So those are our fund manager's views. But where does Megan think you should be putting your money? Shire. It's a big company. It's the third largest UK um, farm or biotech company, but it's fantastic. It's very cheap at the moment. There were a lot of concerns. It made a massive acquisition uh, at the start of this year, and there were a lot of concerns that integration of that acquisition would be difficult. It's progressing very well so far. Their pipeline is massive. Their chief executive actually said when I spoke to him in a, in a press call, he said, we've got the biggest pipeline of any pharmaceutical company. So that's where the experts and our own experts think tomorrow's winners lie. But what about you, the investor? How do you go about accessing this market? How do you get the right blend of young startups and older revenue-generating shares? And can you even get access to these stocks if they're all in the US? Here's Ben again. So buying individual companies, in my view, isn't the most sensible way. And actually, it's the one time, you know, more than one time, when collective investment so funds and investment trusts are more suited to the everyday investor because you've got a spread of 30, 40, 50, 60 companies in there that won't all be one drug companies. And there'll be a mixture of early stage, later stage, bigger companies. For example, that Medivation's recently been taken over from Pfizer, $14 billion company. That's not a small company. That would make it into the FTSE 100. I think a fund would have, or a trust, would have a, a mixture in there of all of those kind of companies within there as a long-term growth strategy. That's an argument our non-biotech fund manager, Peter Hewitt, agrees with. Some of the biotech growth or BB biotech have quite focused portfolios. So they yes, they can, you know, take quite big bets on certain companies, but they'll also have exposure to some of the up and coming 
newer names that maybe aren't so such a big portion of the NASDAQ biotech index, but have some very interesting characteristics. And that's actually what you're looking for your fund manager to discover. You know, the stars of tomorrow. Personally, I would prefer to have an active fund manager, you know, looking after my portfolio. So if it's all about funds, what does Kieran Drake, investment company analyst, think of the options open to UK investors? There are two key UK-listed trusts which invest in solely in biotechnology. So there's Biotech Growth Trust and International Biotechnology Trust. Probably one of the key differentiators between the two is uh, International Biotechnology Trust has an allocation to private equity, which is currently around uh, 10%. It has been higher in the past, but uh, they did make a decision not to invest any any further in, in private equity. Historically, during the, the sort of rally in, in the biotechnology, the listed biotechnology sector, the private equity portfolio was a bit of a drag on, on performance. And of those, which has done the best? I think Biotech Growth Trust has been the standout performer, really. It's got a, a large team, I think around 40 people in, based in New York. They have offices also uh, elsewhere around the world. But it is made up of kind of MDs and PhDs, um, and they really dig deeply into um, the science behind the, the companies. International Biotechnology Trust has a, an allocation to private equity, which at times has been a, a drag on performance. They've also had a new manager back in September 2013, uh, and the, the performance of the listed portfolio and the fund as a whole has improved markedly since then. Biotech certainly has been kind to investors in recent history then, returning their investments by hundreds of percent. But can the good times ever come again, or has this bubble burst for good? It wouldn't surprise me if there were weak performers for the rest of this year because of you know, all the hullabaloo surrounding the US elections. But I would actually use that as an opportunity to pick up some shares because the longer-term outlook is undeniably quite attractive. History always repeats itself. I'm Kate Bealey, and you've been listening to a special podcast on the health of the biotech sector today. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.